Thank you for being here. And those songs that Phil chose did a good job, as best as we can do in a short time, of telling the story of the Bible. Our task tonight is much greater than we are. And there will be many things that will not be said that could be said. But how do you summarize and how do you tell the story of the Bible in a short period of time? That is what we're going to seek to do. First of all, the key character of Scripture is God. Scripture is first and foremost a revelation about Him. It is no accident that God is the subject of the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Our God spoke everything into existence. As the Bible tells us about our God, it is He who created all things, and He is not served by human hands as though He needed anything, but He Himself gives life and breath to all things. The biblical story is a story about God. And the biblical story is a story about man. While God created everything and God spoke all into existence in Genesis 1, He particularly creates man and woman in His image and His likeness in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Of all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, it is only said of man that He is created in God's image. The story of the Bible is the story of God, but is a story of man, is the crown of God's creation as being the first and foremost of all the things that are made by the hand of God. And God placed man in the perfect environment in Genesis chapter 2. And yet this does not prevent man from sinning against God, from rebelling against His Maker. The story of the Bible is the story of God. It is the story of man. And it is the story of man's sin and man's rebellion against God. In the garden, God told man not to eat of the forbidden fruit. But when Eve seduces the woman, she takes and she eats and she gives to her husband and he eats. And the results for mankind are disastrous. In Genesis 3 through 11, added to the genealogies and the tables of nations are four basic accounts. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the ark, and the Tower of Babel. And these all tell the same story of man's sin and man's rebellion. The story of the Bible is the story of God, is the story of man. It is the story of mankind's rebellion against God, man's sin against his maker, man's rebellion against a perfectly good God. But the story of the Bible is a story about God who refuses to give up on man and seeks to call him into a relationship with himself. And after the catastrophic sins and failures of Genesis 3 through Genesis 11, God calls one man, 
God takes the initiative as he always does in the acts of salvation. God takes the initiative and calls one man, Abraham, through whom he will bless all nations. Abraham was not chosen because he was worthy. Because in Joshua 24 verses 2 and 3, both he and his fathers before him had served idols. He is chosen by God's mercy. And he is chosen by God's grace. But God is going to work through him to bless all nations. And the rest of Genesis will tell the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs of the nation. People who at times rose to great heights of faith. In Genesis 22, when God called Abraham to take his son, his only son whom he loved, and offer him as a, on the mountain as a burnt offering, Abraham obeyed God and did it. At times they rose to great faith, but more typically they committed colossal failures and rebellion against God. Maybe nothing, nothing so summarizes that in the book of Genesis, Genesis 37, where Joseph goes out to check on his brothers while they are keeping the herds and keeping the flocks. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 37, Joseph and his brothers, the relationship is described as a relationship between brothers something like 19 or 20 times in the text. Yet it's used ironically because they speak as brothers, but they don't treat them as brothers. And they sell their brother into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And yet, in spite of all of the sin and rebellion and wickedness, even in the chosen line, God refuses to give up on man. And Joseph, who is sold in Egypt as a slave, ultimately by God's providence will end up a ruler in all of the land. And when his brothers are before him and he has the power to do with them anything that he would, he says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That not only summarizes the story of Joseph, it summarizes the story of Genesis and the story of all the Bible. That God takes man's sin and man's rebellion and he weaves it together in a fabric that tells us of God's salvation and God's glory. But as Joseph is a ruler in Egypt and Joseph is caring for the needs of his people, that generation passes and ultimately another generation arises. Another Pharaoh arises who does not know Joseph in all of his contributions to civilization. And they make the Israelites slaves and they oppress them and mistreat them in the land of bondage. And their cry for help rises up to God. And God hears their cry and God has mercy on them. God has mercy on them in spite of the fact that Joshua 24, 14 and 15 tells us that in Egypt they serve other gods. 
Ezekiel 20 verses 7 and 8 tells us the same thing. In spite of that, God has mercy upon them and raises up a deliverer, Moses. And God calls Moses to go and deliver his people. And Moses says, who am I? And the Lord says, I will be with you. And Moses at 80 and his brother Aaron at 83 appeared before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And the text tells us that Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to let the people of Israel go. And God sends the plagues on Egypt to devastate the land of Egypt. And still Pharaoh refuses. Still Pharaoh is disobedient. But finally, there will be a last plague that will be sent. That there will not be a house in the land of Egypt where there will not be someone that is dead. And at this last plague, God finally, Pharaoh finally lets the people go. The Egyptians change their mind and pursue the Israelites. And when the Egyptians are on one side and the sea is on another, Moses raises up his hand and God sends a strong wind that divides the waters and causes Israel to walk through on dry ground. And they sing the song, the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. The exodus is the act of salvation. In the Old Testament. And it becomes a pattern of God's salvation throughout all biblical history as we hope to invoke tonight. But during the period of Israel's wilderness wanderings, their period is characterized by their murmuring and complaining about food and water. But maybe no stretch of this section better summarizes these key characters of God and man better than Exodus 25 through Exodus 40. In Exodus 25 through 31, God gives Israel the instructions for building the tabernacle. And the purpose for building the tabernacle is that God may dwell among his people you see, God hasn't given up on his desire to bring his people into relationship with himself. To bring his people into fellowship with himself. And he gives the instructions for building the tabernacle in Exodus 25-31. to And those instructions are carried out in Exodus 35 through Exodus 40. The Bible tells us they did just as the Lord commanded them. But the Bible tells us between those two sections, between 25 through 31 and 35 through 40, we find Israel making the golden calves. As for this Moses who led us out of Egypt, what has happened to him? Make us gods, Aaron, who will go before us. And Aaron takes them and fashions them into a god. They're violating the very commandments that God had revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. They had said, all the Lord has said, we will do. All the 
Lord has said we will do. But they are quick to disobey and rebel. And that summarizes the biblical story. As God is seeking to have fellowship with man and bringing him into relationship with himself. And man is pushing God away as quickly and as harshly as he can. Yeah. God doesn't give up on his desire to bring man into fellowship with himself. For when the tabernacle is completed, the Bible tells us the glory of the Lord came down and it filled the house. And Moses was not able to minister there. For the glory of God was shown in that house. Israel is on the verge of the promised land. They send 12 spies, one from each tribe, into the land of Canaan to search out the land. And 10 of them come back with the report that the city is good, and the cities are good, and the land is good, and it's very fruitful. But the, 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 the walls are, are big, and the people are strong, and we cannot take the land. Joshua and Caleb stand up and quiet the people and said, If the Lord delights in us, He will give us the land. And yet the text tells us that the people followed the evil spies. And God says, Because of this, for 40 years, you're going to wander in the wilderness. The people are rebellious. The people are sinful. And yet, God still holds the promise of this land to the next generation of Israelites. And Joshua leads the people into the land of Canaan. In the book of Joshua, they fight nations that are stronger than they are. Nations that are mightier than they are. As Psalm 44 verse 3 says, They did not win this battle by their arm and by their bow. It wasn't by their strength that they took this land. It was by the power of God. And it was by the mercy of God in giving this land to His people. The book of Joshua is unique in many ways in the biblical story. Because generally the people are faithful to God in the book of Joshua. Generally they are. But the Bible tells us at the end of the book that Joshua died and that generation died. And there arose another generation. This note is added in Judges that did not know the Lord, nor the goodness that he had prepared for the land of Israel. And the book of Judges tells us of a story of the people's sin and rebellion against God. Their idolatry. And because of their idolatry, God would send punishment against them in the form of a foreign king. And then the text tells us that the people would cry out to God. And God in His mercy, time and time again, would give them a deliverer. He gave them names that you are familiar with. Names like Gideon. Names like Jephthah and Samson. God raised them up to rescue his people. At the end of the book, there is great confusion and great disorder in the book of Judges. Judges 19 through 21 is one of the darkest stories in the biblical text. Read Josh, Judges 19 sometime. In Judges 19, 
When you read the text, if you watch carefully, one thing you'll notice that's absolutely missing from the text is the name of God. You want to create a society where there is no God and there is no consciousness of Him? Well, they tried that in the days of Judges. And it was a society that led to rape and murder and civil war. And the book of Judges tells us there was no king in Israel. And every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There is a longing for a ruler who can keep things straight and enforce right and wrong. And the people sense this need for a ruler. When Samuel is old, they come to him and they say, give us a king who will go before us. You are old and your sons do not walk in your way. Give us a king. And the Bible tells us that their asking for a king was a rejection of God. You see, they had always called upon God and God had delivered them. But now they are asking for a king to judge them and to fight their battles. They before were a group of people who had no king and did what's right in their own eyes. But if Saul is appointed, they have a king who simply does what is right in his own eyes and doesn't walk in the way of the Lord. And the Lord prophesied to Saul that he was going to be rejected and God was going to raise up a man after his heart to do his will. And that man is David. In 1 Samuel 17, we have an extended introduction to David. As we find David was willing to go out and fight the, the, the giant, Philistine giant Goliath. When no one in Israel's army was willing to. He said, you come to me with a sword. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And the Bible tells us that God gives David a stunning victory as he kills Goliath and cuts off his head. And the people chant on the way back from the battle, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And from that day on, Saul viewed David with suspicion. He made his life miserable. But you see, he was the king that God had chosen, that God had raised up. And he is recognized by all Israel after the death of Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's conscience bothers him because he lives in a better house than God does. He dwells in a tent of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant dwells merely in tents. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel 7 that he goes to Nathan and speaks of this. And Nathan says, go and do all that is within your heart. But you see, it wasn't God's will that David build the temple of the Lord. But God said, it's good that this was in your heart. You will not build me a house, but I will build your house. I will, go, I will raise up your sons after you to be king who will rule in your place. And they 
will guide this people. David's reign looked promising. David's reign looked hopeful. David is described as a man after God's own heart. But one day as David is on the roof and sees a beautiful woman bathing, he sins and inquires about her. He inquires about her and ultimately commits adultery with her and has her husband killed in order to cover up his sin. And the book of 2 Samuel shows us the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. The book of 2 Samuel ends up with rape and murder and civil war. Just like the book of Judges did. In the book of Judges it was said there was no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. But now Israel has had a king. And they have had their best king. But apparently he still is not the answer to the longing of the people. He is not, he's not the answer to the needs of this people. Because his reign ends in those difficult situations. But he has a son, Solomon, who is to build the house of the Lord. Solomon is a man noted for his wisdom, noted for his wealth. But the most important accomplishment of Solomon was building the temple of the Lord. In about four of the chapters of 1 Kings that tell of his reign, tell of that story. And just like when the tabernacle was completed, the glory of the Lord came down from heaven and filled the tabernacle and Moses could not enter there. So now when Solomon completes the temple, the glory of the Lord comes down from heaven and and comes down and, and, and Chronicles tells us, consumes the sacrifices upon the altar. And the priests could not minister there. And the point of that was God was giving a visible, a dramatic, visible illustration that He was ruling among the people. He's given a dramatic, visual illustration that He hasn't given up on the people yet. Yet Solomon, who was given such wisdom, who was given such wealth, who was blessed with all kinds of prosperity, marries many strange women that turn his heart away from serving God, even in the reigns of some of the best kings. The the seeds of disaster are being sown. The kingdom is divided because of Solomon's idolatry. The northern kingdom is Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah. In, In the history of the northern kingdom, Israel, from 930 to 722 B.C., they did not have one good king. Their first king, Jeroboam, sets the stage for those kings that follow. 
as he set up golden calves in Dan in the far north and Bethel in the south. And he said to his people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Bible tells us, again, not one of those kings was good. They all did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result, in 2 Kings 17, the Bible tells us that in 722, Israel goes in to Assyrian captivity. This happened not because Israel, not because Assyria was superior militarily to Israel. They were, but that's not why it happened. It happened in 2 Kings 17 because Israel worshipped other gods. And even the records of this Assyrian king say, I carried into captivity the people of Israel and I carried into captivity the gods they served unwillingly. He is acknowledging the biblical story is true. And the people are going into captivity because of their sins and because of their Foolishness. But in Judah, surely things are different. In Judah, you have people from the line of David who are reigning as king. In the land of Judah, you have priests from the tribe of Levi and the family of Aaron who are serving at the altar. And you have the temple of the Lord that Solomon had built years before. Certainly things would be different in Judah than they were in Israel. And there were some good kings in the land of Judah. There were a couple of exceptional, exceptionally good kings in uh, Hezekiah and Josiah. But there were incredibly evil kings like Ahaz and Manasseh who offered their children as human sacrifices and brought idols into the very house of God, into the temple of God, according to 2 Kings 21 in verses 1 through 9. These people, these people who were blessed with such privileges, who were rescued by God and His mercy from the land of slavery, sometimes called the iron furnace of Egypt. These people who were rescued and who God continued to call into fellowship with Himself, continued to rebel, continued to disobey, continued to disregard the will of their God. And the Bible tells us that Ezekiel sees a vision in Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 of the glory of God departing from the temple of the Lord and from the city of Jerusalem. God's glory has left. God has left the building. He has left the temple. And in 2 Kings 25, the Babylonians come and they destroy the temple of the Lord in 587 B.C. God warned Solomon when the temple was built that if you will put your heart and your eyes here, if you will worship me in faithfulness and truth, then my eyes and my heart will always be here and I will accept the worship in this place. But if you turn away from me and you serve other gods, that one day there will not be one stone left upon another. 
And the people who pass by will say, what happened to this house? And it will be said that they forsook the Lord who had delivered them from the land of Egypt. And they didn't worship him. And that's why all this calamity has come. And so the people are experiencing the ultimate result of their decades and centuries of idolatry and rebellion against God. The temple is destroyed in 587. The last king from the line of David is captured in 587. Zedekiah and his eyes are put out. The last thing he ever sees is his sons are killed and then his eyes are put out. And then the people are taken away into slavery. The story began in many ways with the people in slavery from e in Egypt. And God rescued them. And now it goes to slavery in the land of Babylon. Because they have disobeyed their God. Everyone in the ancient Near East who would have seen that Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon, would have interpreted this to mean that Babylon's gods are greater than Judah's gods. Babylon's gods are greater than Israel's gods. But God showed, even in the land of captivity, that he was not dead yet, that he was alive and well, that the people were in captivity not because of his weakness, but they were in captivity because of the people's sin. God showed he was alive and well, particularly in Daniel 3 and Daniel 11. As Nebuchadnezzar sets up, a gold, sets up an image 90 feet tall and commands all the people to bow down and worship it. But Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego would not bow down to his image that he had set up. And the Bible tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar is informed, he calls them for a conference and says, if you're willing, when you hear the musical instruments, to bow down and to worship the gods that I have set up, then fine, all will be forgotten. But if you don't bow down and worship my gods, you're going to be thrown in the midst of a burning and fiery furnace. And what God is there who can deliver us who can deliver you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, We are not careful to respond, O king. For if it be so, our God is able to deliver. But even if he doesn't, we won't bow down to your image or serve the gods that you have set up. And the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was enraged and commanded that the furnace be heated seven times its normal intensity. And they throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into fire. The fire is so intense that those who throw them in the fire are consumed in the flames. But after a while, Nebuchadnezzar looks down and says, Did not we throw three men in the fire? And there are four. There are four there in the fire. And the, when one of them is like the son of the gods, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. And these slaves, these people who serve a God who did not rescue his people out of the hand of the Babylonians, they were able, he was able to rescue those out of the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, out of the hands of this most powerful man on earth. And in this intensely heat, intense fire of the furnace, God is not 
dead. Not only is God alive and well, but God had not given up on his people yet. If you read Leviticus 26, if you read Deuteronomy 28, you find in those chapters that the ultimate curse of the covenant was in many ways captivity. The people have now experienced the ultimate curse of the covenant. When lesser measures didn't work, God invoked his heaviest judgment. But now certainly, after decades and centuries of idolatry, God is ready to give up on his people. But he hasn't given up on his people yet. They're taken in captivity in 587. It is only a few years in 539 that the Persians defeat the Babylonians. And the king of Persia by the name of Cyrus says that all of you who worship the God of Israel can go back to Jerusalem and you can build a house to your God. You see, God hasn't given up on his people. And the people left the land of Babylon. Many of them left the land of Babylon to go back and to build the temple of the Lord. If you compare the words of Ezra 1 with the words of the book of Exodus, you find that the return from Babylonian captivity is described in the terms of another Exodus. The Exodus becomes a paradigm of God's salvation throughout all of Scripture. And the people go back with the express purpose of building the temple of the Lord. But when they go back, there is discouragement. This temple just doesn't look as good. It's the first temple of Solomon did. Solomon could lavish all his wealth upon it. And this temple doesn't look as good. And the people are discouraged. And there is opposition from without. As the Samaritans, when they are not allowed to build, do everything they can to frustrate the effort. And all work on the temple ceases for a period of 15 to 20 years. And the Bible tells us that God raises up Haggai and raises up Zechariah. And they preach the message to build the house of the Lord. To build the temple of the Lord. The people listen to their preaching. And again, like in the days of Joshua, they are obedient to God. They do what the Lord told them to do. They arise and they build. And they finish that temple around 516 or 515 B.C. And when they finish that second temple, just like what happened at the tabernacle, and just like what happened at Solomon's temple, the Bible says the glory of God came down from heaven and it filled. No. the Old Testament in God's house is waiting to be filled with God.
God's glory. It is waiting to be filled with God's glory. For many years, God gives no new revelation. That doesn't mean God is not happy. That doesn't mean God is not alive and well, but He's giving no new revelation. Until finally the voice of John comes in the wilderness of Judea, preaching to repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And God sends His Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in that chapter, in verse 14 of John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. It tabernacled among us. As the tabernacle was filled with the glory of God in the days of Moses, and the temple was filled with the glory of God in the days of Solomon, Jesus embodies the glory of God, the temple of God. And the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, Jesus taught powerful things. He said amazing things. And as some who came back from arresting him, and they came back empty-handed, and they were asked, why didn't you arrest him? They said, no man ever spoke the way this is. Jesus taught great things. Jesus did amazing miracles. John tells us if all of the things he did were written in a book, the world itself could not contain the book that could be written. Jesus did amazing things, but first and foremost, Jesus came to die and to be raised. He came to die. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem to suffer much from the religious leaders and be killed and be be rejected and killed and raised again the third day. And in the cross merge so many biblical things. We have seen the story of the Bible is the story of man's rebellion to God and man's disobedience to God. And this is typified in the cross. As you see, God come in the flesh. God that they can touch. And God dwelling among them. And they spit in His face. And they slap Him with their hands. And they nail Him to a tree and murder it. This shows the height of man's sin against God. And yet the very same event which shows us the height of man's sin. And man's rebellion shows us the height and the depth of God's love. No greater love has a man than this but to lay down his life for his spirit. God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. 
for perhaps someone would die for a good man or a just man. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross demonstrates the height of man's rebellion against God, but the height of God's love for man. When there was no other way, he came, knowing all he would endure, knowing all he would experience. And when he died for the cross, his closest followers were devastated and broken. And Joseph of Arimathea takes the body of Jesus and bears it in his tomb. But his enemies remembered something that his followers did. They come to Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that while that deceiver was here, he said, After three days I will rise again and let's make set a guard around the tomb and make it as secure as we know how lest his disciples come and steal the body and say that he has risen and so guards were stationed around the tomb and their task is simple to make sure that no one comes in and steals the body of Jesus and that no one walks out of that tomb alive But on the first day of the week, the angel of the Lord descends from heaven and rolls away the stone. And the guards shake for fear like dead men. And Jesus arises triumphant from the grave. All who come looking to finish anointing the body of Jesus find find the tomb of Jesus empty. They find that he had been raised from the dead. Death cannot keep its prey. Jesus, my Savior. He tore the bars away. Jesus, my Lord. The world would never be the same after that event. All the promises to Abraham stated in Genesis 12 are fulfilled in Jesus according to Acts 3, 25 and 26. All the things about the tabernacle and the temple being filled with God's glory are fulfilled in Jesus. The promises to David that his descendants would sit upon his throne and reign are fulfilled in Jesus in Acts 2. And Jesus accomplishes the ultimate exodus that brings man into fellowship with God. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him at this, in these series of events. And you look in the Gospels at the Apostles, and the Apostles were people that that, that if our future, the future of our business depended on the Apostles as they are presented in the Gospels, then our business would be in very bad shape. But the Apostles saw the resurrected Lord. And they were changed men as a result. They were changed men. On the day of Pentecost, they were all in one room praying. And the Bible tells us that the Spirit came and filled them. And there was a sound like of a rushing mighty wind. And they began to go out and preach in the different languages of the people that were present. And the Bible tells us that the people asked, How are not all these men 
Spaniards speaking Galileans. How do we hear them each in our own language? Some are mocking and saying, these men are drunk. And Peter said, these men are not drunk. This is only the third hour of the day. This is that which is spoken by the the prophet Joel. That in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your old men shall see visions. And your young men shall dream dreams. Let me preach to you about Jesus of Nazareth. A man who did signs and wonders among you, as you yourselves know. And yet he was rejected and killed. But God raised him from the dead. A fact to which David bore witness in the Psalms. And he quotes Psalm 16. He quotes Psalm 132. He quotes Psalm 110. And so these promises were fulfilled in David, who is dead and buried, and whose tomb is with us to this day. These promises are fulfilled in Jesus. And he said, this Jesus, you crucified. God is made both Lord in Christ. Peter, who was unwilling to confess a few weeks before that he was a follower of Jesus, even to a servant girl, is now standing up before all and saying, this Jesus you crucified, God is made both Lord in Christ. The crowd was convicted and they asked men and brethren, what should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, to all who are far off, and as many as the Lord our God shall call. In the book of Acts, there are several progress reports that emphasize the Word of God keeps growing. The Word of God keeps spreading in spite of the fact that there is opposition from the world. In spite of the fact that the apostles are beaten and thrown in prison. The Word of God is not bound. And the Word continues to go forth so that it has reached people on every continent of the world truly. As it was said in Acts 17, these men turned the world upside down. And the Jesus who came, and the Jesus who died, and the Jesus who rose again will one day come back. And before him will be gathered all nations and all mankind's eternity would have been on their response to him. Why does God continue to spare our wicked and ungodly world? Why have we reached the date of 2023 AD? God is not slow concerning his promises as some count slowness but his long suffering to us not wishing that any should perish but all should come to repentance the only reason God spares our world is because he's not given up on people yet but his love still persists in calling people to be right with Him. I hope you'll respond to what God has done is to say, see, here's why 
what forbids me.